This is Fintech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest fintech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the Fintech Takes newsletter, your host, and self-confessed fintech nerd. Let's go! Hello, and welcome to a very special live edition of uh, the Fintech Takes podcast. This is another edition of uh, Not Fintech Investment Advice, and we're recording this live from the Fintech Meetup event in beautiful, if not totally sunny, Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, I am joined by a returning champion guest, Mr. Simon Taylor of Sardine and Fintech Brain Food. Simon, how are you? Other than the poorly, poorly voice, I'm absolutely fine. Fintech Meetup has been really, really fun. It's meant talking to lots of people, but it's also meant I've lost my voice in the process. So bear with me, listeners. Uh, we're going to have a fun one today. Like, let's just dive into it. And let's see if like having a bad voice has the Phoebe Buffet effect and makes these fintechs just sound like that a little bit better. I don't know. Maybe I'm just like lying to myself here, but it could be fun. Let's bring it. The good phlegm is Phoebe Buffet. Yes. <laughs> the okay. good phlegm. And if you didn't watch Friends, then you won't get those references. Yeah. But if you did, then, you know, you're a nerd like us. <laughs> <laughs> well, a Friends nerd and a FinTech nerd, I think, is a good place to start. This is another episode of uh, Not FinTech Investment Advice. So I will say off the top, please do not take this as actual investment advice. Simon and I really have no idea what we're doing. We just wander around and run into interesting fintech companies and talk about them. So we are going to take turns just talking about fintech companies that have been on our minds lately or that are caught our eye. And then at the end, we'll spend a couple minutes trying to manifest some new fintech idea that should exist in the market. So with that, Mr. Taylor, as a guest, would you like to go first? Always, sir. Always. All right. First up, we have... Ondors, O-N-D-O-R-S-E. Yeah. This is Know Your Business, KYB, Automation for Marketplaces and Fintech Companies. Now, it's not a KYB supplier. It is almost an integrator and aggregator of various things you need to add to the KYB process. So you can use up to 25 pre-integrated solutions and build workflows for onboarding, fraud, anti-money laundering. And the idea is you can expand into multiple global markets. So if you want to launch in one country, usually there's a solution that's kind of got you figured out. If you want to launch in 60 global markets, that's going to be a little bit harder. And if you are that kind of marketplace that's onboarding lots of businesses, that could be useful. So they claim to reduce manual review by 60% and 2x customer conversion. Pretty good start. Nice. We've seen this workflow thing happen with payments. We're starting to see it with the compliance and fraud and AML side. I'd like that this is like going for default global. I think that's a big trend and a big topic. And if they can really help with KYB, that's a great place to be, especially for marketplaces that are trying to onboard somebody that are trying to monetize through payments. Do you want to integrate 25 different things and all of these suppliers, especially in this funding environment, especially when everybody's looking at unit economics? So, you know, maybe the answer is just one more SaaS product. Excellent. The, the SaaS product to rule them all, right? Uh, and in the darkness. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I do think that's a really interesting point. I mean, the global first thing 
is a really interesting shift, right? And it's so recent, you know, I mean, like really, I mean, obviously since we've had the internet, we've technically had the ability to be global, but you know, I mean, even I was surprised to learn the other day that Amazon for its sort of global importance, really the vast majority of what it does is US centric, right? I mean, like Amazon is not a dominant retail or e-commerce platform, globally speaking, it really is like, I think it's like 75% of its businesses in the US, despite being this massive company. And I think that's kind of a relic of the era that it was built in, right? It was built on the internet, zero distribution costs, all that kind of stuff. But it was built in the US and it was built with a US workforce. And like, there's just a whole set of sort of cultural constraints that go into building a business when your expectation is, we're going to build it in this country, and then maybe we'll expand globally. That is very different than the world we live in now, which is if you're a startup and you're starting from scratch right now and you want to build a little e-commerce business or you want to build whatever, you can build global by default, right? Now we have global workforces and the expectation that, you know, we're all going to have colleagues that live all over the globe, which is wild. But that's the sort of post-COVID world that we live in. We live in a world where this sort of underarching sort of architecture for how all of this stuff works is much more interconnected than it used to be. And so suddenly we have the ability to do that. But I guess to the point of this company, there are still legacies of things that are very country-specific and KYB, and I imagine KYC is one of those things. I was speaking to the head of payments at one of the largest sort of consumer technology companies about two, three weeks ago, and they've done really well growing their subscriber base for the product they offer in media and streaming of us all. So, you know, that narrows it to like 10. And the thing that they'd found is most of that growth in the last two years had come from non-US, non-European markets. And that was dealing with week after week, day after day, different last mile problem in payments, different last mile problem in compliance. And the last mile problem is worth looking into if you're not familiar with it, which is essentially the last mile is the hardest. If you want to send something internationally via, you know, like snail mail, you can get a DHL or a courier or a FedEx to get it most of the way there to a hub airport really easily. And then you can probably get it from a major city to a regional hub. And then from the regional hub, then you can probably get it within about five to a, the last mile. But the last mile, that's where all of the cost comes in and that's where all the complexity comes in. Yeah. Well, that's kind of true if you're trying to expand internationally when it comes to things like KYB. You have to think about how you onboard a business in the United States is very different to Lithuania, which is different to Estonia, which is different to the Middle East, the UAE, anywhere else. And these are all fairly large markets, especially when you get out to India and you get out to other places. Expansion's hard. So you've got to think about what are the things that I would normally do? And when companies try and do that, they kind of end up in this stop start. It's like, oh, good, let's go expand. Sure. On a wait, we've been doing this for two years and we haven't succeeded. Let's contract again. You get this back and forth until they can either get big enough to brute force it like the big tech companies have yep. or something like this comes along. Yeah, no, I, it's a point really well made. I think that that's the ultimate sort of next phase to me in a way of, fintech and kind of what we're solving for is that last mile problem. And, you know, as the the world sort of shifts and the nature of competition shifts, like suddenly if you're building a marketplace or an e-commerce platform, you know, you need to sort of operate global from the start, right? And the ability to 
have the infrastructure necessary to do that makes a lot of sense to me. What concerns do you have or things that like are still sort of open questions for you on these guys? Yeah, open question is fintech is starting to resemble sedimentary rock. Like everything is built on top of something else, which yeah. is built on top of something else, which is... So where's the value? Like who owns the value? Who captures the value? Who creates the value? And so I think if you are a SaaS product, the value you typically create is the ability to remove operational expense and complexity and the ability to continually invest in research and development and have the economies of scale that the that your client would never have yeah and then once you get those economies of scale that should if you get big enough become a moat yeah but in this category it's still super early so it's hard to tell if these sort of aggregators will become it or are they acquisitions for somebody else who has the lower level intellectual property that does the actual document collection, that does the actual, that goes closer to the metal. So I think with these things, I'm a big fan of Stan Shee's smiling curve, sure. which says that typically value accrues either to those closest to the metal, to the research and development. So in chip manufacturing, that might be ARM. Yeah. You know, it might be Intel, it might be N NVIDIA. And on the opposite end, it's the people who distribute and market. So that would be Apple. Yep. Right. And so living in the middle is hard. Living in the middle is hard. It's not always where you want to be, but it, you know, there are some great places in the middle to be if you can carve out that niche. But is that, again, we had this chat before, is that the venture business or is it an acquisition? So that's my question, yep. but this thing needs to exist. Increasingly, I'm thinking things that are great features become a reason to buy from somebody big versus another somebody big. Totally. But they could also be a whole wedge of products of like those vertical SaaS businesses that are not doing billions in revenue, but a hundred million in ARR. Yeah. If you're a marketplace doing that, you're going to choose this solution and you might be a meaningful customer to somebody of an on-door sort of side. So I can see both sides of it. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting point, right? I mean, it kind of goes back to like the Stripe betting on the future of the internet economy sort of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a question of like, just how many of these e-commerce marketplace global by default businesses end up being built and being really successful. And, you know, I mean, I think we're in kind of a tough place in the tech ecosystem right now, but generally speaking, betting on the growth of the internet has been a good bet over time. It's done all right, hasn't it? Yeah, it's I mean, done fine. But speaking of growth, let's grow into your next question. Oh, excellent transition. Okay. Oh, so, well, I appreciate it. Uh, professional podcaster here. So, um, Mine is, my first one is a company called Parker. Familiar with these guys? Yeah. So this is, uh, these ones were new to me. So I think just came out of stealth. So maybe why we haven't really talked about them before, but corporate card for e-commerce businesses. And so the general premise is that they target e-commerce businesses of a sort of mid-size. So think like 3 million to 100 million in annual sales. So not small, not startups, but also not the behemoth e-commerce companies. And they're providing a corporate card in the same way that an American Express would, or more recently, like a Brex or a Ramp or someone like that. Two things that seem to distinguish the product. One is that it's designed to provide these e-commerce companies with like the highest possible credit limit, right? And so they talk about underwriting as a secret sauce. And whenever anyone talks about underwriting as a secret sauce, I naturally sort of freak out and be like, no, 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 never say that. But looking at the website and kind of parsing some of the details and reading about the company, their general premise is that e-commerce businesses, like 
all businesses have their own quirks about, you know, the way in which you need to understand the value of an e-commerce business, how you assess the metrics, how it's growing, how it's retaining customers, how it's sort of diversifying into new product areas. And there's a level of art to understanding e-commerce businesses that not any sort of generic bank or corporate card provider is going to have, but the founders of this company have worked for a long time in the e-commerce space. And so they feel comfortable that they have the sort of art part of the art and science equation for underwriting e-commerce companies and claim to be able to underwrite them at much higher limits, up to $10 million, which is, you know, a significant amount. And as with any business, but I think in particular with e-commerce, the ability to have more cash flow and be able to invest more in your business is really a much more direct path to like stepping on the gas pedal and really growing your business. So that's sort of the argument. They get the data they need to sort of feed into that artful underwriting by integrating with your Shopify's and PayPal's and all the commerce platforms that these companies work with. And then secondly, the other thing that they talk about as sort of a key differentiator is the ability to offer longer payment terms. And so, you know, again, if you're a business and you're looking to use a corporate card to sort of stretch out your cash flow, what you'd want is the longest possible payment term. So instead of offering, you know, 15-day net payment terms or 30 net payment terms, they actually go all the way out to 60 days net payment terms. And specifically, they think about it as rolling payment terms in the sense that every transaction can be rolled out 60 days. So it's kind of like this ongoing credit line in a way, more so than it is like your typical card where everything sort of consolidates down into one balance and a statement at the end of the month. So they have more of this rolling sort of credit limit idea, which again is designed to essentially give more cash flow and more sort of spending power to these companies. So that's the pitch. They are very focused on obviously this specific niche. And I will admit to being somewhat fond of the idea of within the corporate card world, more specialization and more like verticalization. I wrote recently that like, you know, the case of like Silicon Valley Bank, we've all been talking about recently. And why? Yeah, I mean, uh, just we picked them out of a hat. 16th largest bank. They seem interesting. Yeah. Nothing to live in. Number 16. Yeah. Lucky number. Lucky number. Yeah. Nothing bad ever happens. And um, then one of the things that struck me about SVB is that specialization was key to their success, right? In terms of attracting customers. And there is a level of like, it's important to understand the companies that you're working with beyond just like what it says on the spreadsheet. And so I do buy the argument that like that understanding can bridge a better offering that you can give to those customers that your competitors who just don't quite have that level of insight in the business can't do. So I think that's an interesting concept. It sort of reminds me a little bit of what Trip Actions and now Navon is doing in the corporate card space, but specifically for travel. So like the ability to solve these hard problems when you specialize I think is a little bit greater. They make most of their money on interchange right now, so they don't charge like SaaS fees or anything like that. Yeah. That's a concern that I have about them. And, you know, I mean, I do think they have a decent amount of traction in the market from what I can see. They already have, you know, a number of customers that are sort of those retailers in the e-commerce space that fit in that three to $100 million in annual sales bucket. And they raised a Series A recently. And so I think that, you know, interesting company, part of a sort of maybe new wave of slightly more vertical focused fintech companies that are focused on corporate card and expense management. But Simon, what's your take? I, I'm just trying to, did they publish their APY? No, they didn't. Not that I could tell. Interesting. Yeah. Because like the APYs on a card are typically different to the APY on a working capital loan. Yeah. And so this immediately made me think, why would you turn a working capital loan 
at a working capital facility into a card. And then I went, oh yeah, no, obviously, so that you can spend it. Uh, right, like, right. Rather than having to then do invoicing and then uh, have an AP solution and da 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 da. I've got this card and I can just go buy inventory. Yep. And if I've got inventory, I can then sell stuff. And if I don't have inventory, there's nothing I can sell and there's no revenue coming in the door. Classic of an e-commerce business. But then like, yeah, that was question number one. So didn't say that. Interesting. Question number two was, what do you think the go-to-market looks like? Because it's not obvious to me why okay, you've worked in e-commerce, you know, some friends and family, Sure, you could, you could get some people, but I don't know if there's, you know, with founder market fit, do they have a black book that can get them some initial traction? Can they build a flywheel? Like that's the age old question. Yeah. I think that's a great question. And, you know, I mean, it, it's an interesting contrast with like Brex, right? As an example. So Brex obviously serves a much broader segment. It's not just e-commerce businesses. It's, you know, sort of high growth businesses, sort of somewhat more generically. And you know, these guys, in contrast to someone like a Brex, they don't offer rewards, right? There's no rewards, as far as I can tell. And I think what that means is they're not trying to use the interchange as a lever to grow by handing that back to customers. They're trying to, I think, have that as a part of their unit economics. Well, and then on the unit economics, so the 60-day thing. Yeah. Like, that's not a long time if we don't know what the APY is. So, because typically with a card, you make better interchange than you do on Durban Debit, and that can be good, Yeah, but it's not set the world on fire revenues. It's not going to pay for all of your bills. That's right. Typically, if I look at a credit card business, 25 to 30, maybe as upwards of 40% of income is on the interchange side. It's, yeah. it's not nothing. Yeah. But then, you know, the rest is either fees or it's interest income. Yeah. Net yeah. interest income. And maybe 50% is that, and that's where you want to make your money. Yeah. And if these guys have underwriting secret source and they can make the money there, yeah. then great. Good for them. But yeah, it's just the split. And that's the problem with people coming out in stealth and the website not saying so much. Yeah. yeah. You don't know. Maybe they've got this all figured out. Oh, I wish I had a crystal ball. It's tough. It's tough. Yeah. I mean, I think the... That's why it's not fintech investment advice. That's right. That's right. There are questions here. There are questions. I mean, I think to your point about other income streams, the other thing I think about here is... Again, from what I could tell from their website, which, you know, it's just a cursory glance, so I might have missed something, but they have the basics that you would expect, right? They do unlimited virtual cards to manage expenses. They have the sort of basic like accounting integrations. You can close your books and that kind of stuff. But when I compare it to the sort of innovations that we've seen more recently from Brex and from Ramp and from Airbase, like those companies don't really call themselves corporate card providers. They call themselves expense management providers. And it's because most of their business is software that helps with spend management. And it does a lot of the other things that wrap around the corporate card. And the corporate card is sort of the engine that makes all those things go, but it's the other stuff that you're getting that's helping that CFO or the folks that are in his office or her office manage the company's spending and reduce your burn and like better manage your spending. And I didn't see a lot of those extra bells and whistles there. That software's hard to build. Ramp has been working on that for quite a while. Brex with, I think Brex Empower has been coming with that. But those are software features that you can charge subscription fees for, right? Those are other areas where you can make money separate from interchange. And without that, I do worry that this is overly interchange-dependent business model. Yeah, and there's a whole bunch of people trying to go into the e-commerce operating system space. Yeah. Like, this feels like the monetization backend of one of those businesses. Right. 
you know, like well, you mentioned Nirvana earlier, the artist formerly known as Trip Action. Yeah. Like they started out as a travel booking service Trip. that had a card. Trip. Now they're like a cardy, travel y focused specialist, but okay, cool. But really it's you solve you go deeper into the problem space. You go wide, nice and wide. That's right. This is our that space is competitive, so I can see why they've done something different. But then it's the go-to-market question. What is your motion here, people? Yeah. I want to know. Downright curious. Okay. Well, if someone knows the answer to this, hit Simon up on uh, social because he is deeply curious. Simon, why don't you take us to our next one? Yeah, sure. The next one is Get Momo. Okay. I like that name. This is a vertical fintech for rentals and landlords based out in Germany. Okay. Now, Get Momo provides landlords with a single account to manage their portfolio of properties and it what it does is it partners with a local bank to help renters fund cash deposits oh interesting for renters this means they can swap their previous cash deposit and move into a new home without being out of pocket uh-huh. and landlords get all of the benefits you'd want from a vertical fintech like automated payments accounting reporting single dashboard all of that kind of good stuff so landlords end up with like more tenants and less admin. Sure, sure. I like that sales pitch. That's that's kind of a price worth paying. And also, remember, Germany is a rental market. Less than 40% of the population owns a property. Huh. And as I think about it from a US and a European perspective, as we head into this market with rising interest rates, things are breaking, the housing market's frozen, a generation or a risk of being stuck in a high-cost mortgage or rental this is a model that could work elsewhere. So, you know, they've had to solve for the, like, the landlord, the renter, property management companies, but it's this lovely little space where vertical SaaS meets prosumer landlording and credit. And I like it a lot. It just struck me as like right thing, right time, right market. It's a good business. Yeah, no, I, I like this a lot. It's funny, you know, this, and we've talked about this area, generally speaking, in uh, some previous podcasts as well, but... There is something delightful, honestly, about solutions that get built in the housing, prop tech, real estate market because they're fintech solutions kind of at their core. That's sort of what they're doing. But it's really cool how they always seem to assemble all of the pieces necessary, right? Especially when you're dealing with like a multi-party market where there's renters, there's landlords, there's brokers, there's like all of these different like stakeholders within an ecosystem. And you're building a software platform functionally that brings all of them together and sort of solves incremental problems for each such that the value of the platform is not like, it's not one killer wedge for any one of those things. It's like slightly fewer hassles for everybody. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think that takes a lot of thought. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it takes a lot of iteration. It takes a lot of consideration and get rid of the hassle, get into a next property. And they're partnering with a bank underneath it as well. Like, yeah. how often do you see that in Europe? In the US, there's lots of partner banks sure. for better and worse. Yep. In Europe, that's just a lot, lot rarer. Although Germany does have a lot of banks. It probably, of all the European markets, resembles the US the most in yep. that sense. Yeah. You know, one or two very, very large banks and then just a, this massive long tail. So it's entirely possible that this starts to emerge. And... We don't talk a lot about the giant fintechs coming out of Germany. 
So like, shout out to those guys. Yeah, well done. I mean, it, it's a good point, right? And I think that the other point you bring up about like Germany being somewhat unique from like a high percentage of rentals and like yeah. that type of market. I mean, I think that's the other thing that's useful to understand is that all of these different countries where these fintech innovations are starting to sort of flourish, they're flourishing under slightly different conditions, right? And so you get to get like almost a glimpse into the future a little bit of like what it's going to look like, again, for better or for worse, when the US or the UK or some of these other markets has a much higher ratio of people who rent for a long term. Yeah. Right. And it's, you know, I mean, then that's like, that's kind of our destiny. That's where we're headed, again, for better or for worse, just based on sort of other dynamics in the housing space. Well, and culturally, Germany uh, is a savings market, right. not heavily indebted. Yep. Culturally, Germany is a market that really values privacy. There's a lot of stuff there where you need this kind of model for it to work. But also, if you look at the history of Klarna, yes, it grew out of Scandinavia originally, yeah. but its first big non-small market was Germany. Germany yeah. Why? Because people didn't want to use credit cards online. Credit cards, you use them online because you get all of the consumer protections that a credit card offers. Yep. Something doesn't get delivered, boom, you're protected, you're taken care of. Well, if you only want to pay cash, you don't have necessarily those protections, yep. uh, especially back then. So Klarna was a way to manage delivery risk. Yeah, That's what it starts out as. Yep. So you see that these innovations that now we take for granted have this interesting history as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that you know, circling back to the partnership with the bank, the other thing I think is kind of interesting there, and it's a sort of larger thesis maybe that I have about sort of how the prop tech space might evolve, but there's such huge and sort of obvious role for community banks. And this is a kind of a US centric perspective, but like the role of community banks in helping to solve housing and housing supply and renting problems within their community, right? Because there's that yeah. local connection to the community and there's a knowledge of that community and it's just it seems like such an obvious marriage of you know the bank can provide a lot of the underlying financial services whether it's helping to manage security deposits or it's helping to sort of encourage savings for down payments for renters converting into homeowners whatever it is but like there are so many knock-on benefits to a bank in their local community facilitating that role for renters and homeowners in that community it seems like such a natural sort of virtuous cycle. Yeah. I'm surprised you don't see more of that, honestly. Yeah, like, why not? I know we're not ready for the end of the show yet, but like, <laughs> let's manifest that, man. I love let's that. I love that. Well, let's circle back to that in a second. I'm going to give you my last fintech company. Let's bring it. Okay. So I think you're going to like this one. This one is called... Challenge Accepted. Challenge Accepted. Portable. And it's P-O-R-T-A-B-L. So a little different spelling. And they're providing a decentralized portable digital identity. So the basic idea here is that uh, you as a consumer, a human, as they call them on their website, creates a... Out of those. Yeah, humans, right? Yeah, like the, the thing that's supposed to be at the end they of they all this. planet or something? I don't know. Caused a run on a bank, I heard. I don't, I don't know a lot of details about that one. And uh, so you create this portable ID that essentially acts as sort of your financial data passport. And you go through sort of the initial sign-up or onboarding process. And then the idea is that that can be a reusable identity credential that you take with you. Now, the interesting thing to me about Portable specifically and the strategy they have is, if you think about the world of digital identity, and I know you have a lot, 
you basically have this, from my perspective, kind of a continuum, right? And on the one end of the continuum, you have like, let's say Apple, right? And it's like a very centralized play on digital identity. Or it's like, we want to make it incredibly easy for consumers to have a digital identity, manage it, make it very easy to use in all of these places. So as long as you pay the Apple tax, you're exactly, good. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, have to have an Apple device, have to pay the Apple tax. All the other people you interact with also have to pay the Apple tax. And really, this is designed to make it delightful to stay within the Apple ecosystem. Unless you buy a dongle where it's, you can have non, not being delightful. Right. In which case, how dare you? And <laughs> please, please go away. So that's like the, the general premise on the one end of the spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, and this is like the anti-Apple perspective is, you see this a lot in crypto, let's have a completely decentralized approach to identity where literally it's a trustless environment and your identity is essentially calculated by the millions of different smart contracts that you've interacted with and your sort of associated on-chain reputation with all of those interactions. And that's sort of intriguing in an abstract, somewhat theoretical sense, I think that it's also a little impractical as it relates to like navigating the regulated financial services world where I don't think those types of identity credentials are going to be accepted from like a KYC perspective anytime soon. And given regulators' current attitudes around crypto, maybe it'll be quite a while before that becomes something that's palatable. So those are the two ends of the continuum. Portable sits in a really interesting sort of middle of the continuum because they want it to be decentralized. They don't want it to be kind of what Apple looks like. However, the way they frame it and the way I've kind of sort of come to understand it is it's really like an actual passport, right? And so if you think about a passport in like the physical world, there's some, you know, sort of trusted entity that's issuing the passport and they're doing the initial verification of you and your identity. They're giving the passport and handing it over to you. However, then once you start using the passport in other places, you're getting stamps in your passport. And there are other people that are further sort of validating their interactions with you. And maybe, you know, if you're going to this country over here, you have to do a couple of extra steps in order to like make it into that country. But once you've done those, those get added to sort of the history of your passport and that stamp represents something. So the concept is over time, when you have a passport with lots of stamps in it, suddenly it's this really interesting combination of validated by a lot of central actors, but also decentralized in the sense that it's not controlled by any one entity that we're putting all of our trust into. And it allows for this sort of very interesting hybrid model where you can take your identity to lots of different places over time. And so I'm very intrigued by this concept. I just as a couple last little details on them, again, sort of in a crypto sense, they are using zero knowledge proofs to help with the verification of someone's credentials without actually sharing those credentials or the identity data which I think is probably a smart way to build. They're signing up companies on an individual company basis to offer this. So think about like if you're signing up with your bank and during the onboarding process, you know, you're signing up, you give them all your data and then you come back and you interact with them again and they sort of treat you like you're a brand new person and there's a whole lot of work that goes into re-authenticating yourself in order to get back in. One way I think that Portable is trying to go to market here is to say to those companies, hey, when you're doing the initial onboarding, sign them up for this Portable ID and next time they interact just with you, you don't have to worry about anyone else out there just with you. They can use that portable ID and it makes that much more of like a VIP streamless experience to come back to you, right? And be, you know, a customer just with that one company. And that's sort of a way to like get over the cold start problem and kind of yeah. bootstrap that network that they want to build over time. A hundred percent. So I, I, I know Nate Sofo, the founder. I figured you might. Yeah, he's reached out a bunch of times. I've written this one up in Brain Food. Conceptually. I absolutely love this. It's just the obvious answer. Like when you hear it, it's like, oh yeah. Makes sense. What, why wouldn't that work? Mm -hmm. Like it just makes complete, it 
itself has a cold start problem and it itself has a problem of like, how do you convince big old organizations to use your weird little decentralized thing? That's right. And so the go-to-market is the hardest thing by far. I've actually seen a few companies that have been grinding in this space going back to 16, 17, now start to gain traction and they appear and they start to just look like the UK equivalent of clear. Mm. You know, it's just like, this is this way to just prove your identity in a yep. bunch of places. Yep. It's kind of nice and it's kind of easy. The consumer side of this is really key. Yeah. Right. As well. So not only do I have a, I need loads of big organizations to point at the consumer problem. Mm -hmm. I have a consumer needs to find this valuable in enough places and the experience needs to be great problem. And so that's where the people who already do this, folks like a plaid could fit really nicely. Yeah. Folks like a clear could fit really nicely. Folks like a TSA could fit really nicely. And if anybody at those organizations is listening, go look at this organization and go get it done because we should just make it a default. In fact, anybody from uh, SoCure, Persona, Encode, like on Fido, you guys should just all go work with something like this. There are competitors to Portable. You yep. should work with those too. Yep. The names escape me right now and they're not on the top of my mind. Please don't at me if you are listening and you also do something a bit like this. But, yeah, it's the obvious answer. Let's just go do it. The space is, it makes a ton of sense, right? And I, I think that, you know, my, my question about this, which is also the reason I hope something like this succeeds is the Apple question, right? And I, I think that, you know, at the end of the day. I think those things are mutually exclusive though. Okay, go. Like Apple can exist and do their thing. And then that can be like a really secure, trusted way to point at portal. It can be a stamp in that passport. Exactly. And they're going to own a passport. But the problem Apple's going to have is the same problem they had with Apple Pay and the same problem we were talking about earlier. And it's, uh, they're going to have, it's going to take them two, three, four decades to get this outside the States in a reasonably large scale. Yeah. And when they do, it's going to, it's just going to take a while. And it's only going to have so many use cases because they go one by one, partnership by partnership. Yeah. And they're big and they'll get there. But it's, it, there's also the other side of the argument, which is what about the long tail? What about everything else? Yep. And I think that's worth exploring too. Can we make that long tail decentralized thing secure enough? Yes, we can. If there's enough focus, yep. let's go play with it. The best time to do something like this is in a bear market for crypto. Totally. I think crypto decentralization, all of that sorely needs a rebrand. And if I was to call it something, I'd call it tokenized identity. Yeah. How do you tokenize a tokenize identity? You use a passport, a digital passport. Yeah. And if you can articulate it that clearly and neatly, you're in good shape. Let's go do this. I totally agree. I totally agree. I think it's uh Can you tell I like this subject but also hate it? I figured that this was gonna touch on an area that uh, I, I know you've uh, spent some brain cycles on. So to speak. You unleashed the animal, man. <laughs> My voice feels better somehow. Well, we like the passion is like it's like healing your vocal cords. This is amazing. You should see Simon like in person. He was kind of tired when he stepped into the podcast booth, and he's re-energized. Passion is my fuel, man. It really is. I told you I'm not just a fintech nerd, like as a some weird little branding thing. Like it actually gets me out of bed in the morning. It's true. That's true. Yeah, it's deep in his bones and mine too. So on that note, take your passion and manifest something that you want. Simon. Everything we just talked about with these Israelized identities. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Tokenized identity. Let's go do it. Like, what is holding us back? All right. What's holding us back? Let's be sensible. What's holding us back 
is that these platforms have a questionable regulatory existence. Yeah. Do we do it all on Ethereum? What are all, what if it gets hacked? What if something goes wrong? How does the consumer recover their identity once it's stolen? Yeah. There are sensible answers to all of this, but it's not been proven at scale. So we need to test an experiment and dip our toe into it and gradually move towards it. There are also sensible questions about the sort of the consumer privacy over time. Yes, you're doing it in a decentralized way. Yes, you're doing it with zero knowledge proofs. But what if that passport is stamped by somebody that you don't want it to? And what do they learn about that person's previous transactions? What do they get the payload? Now, I'm not saying that portable will be the issue here, but there might be other providers where there is some sort of leak. We saw you know, the traditional security model of centralization got hacked a lot. Yeah. Sorry to call it, but Equifax got hacked. Sony, Target, like all of these high profile hacks can happen. Yep. If that happens in decentralization, now it's not just all of that data, it's all of the links to all of the data everywhere else. Yeah. And I don't know if consumers are ready to be their own bank. I'm pretty sure they're not ready to be their own government identity issuer. Yeah. So user experience, operational security needs to be really, really managed. Now I'm talking it down. Because I just talked it up, so I feel like I'd already manifested it. Yeah. Whereas now I'm like, here are the hard problems we got to go solve. So let's go solve them. And if I was honestly head of strategy anywhere, well, in, including with Sardine, but it's not the focus right now, but a head of strategy anywhere that especially was like a clear or a TSA or anybody with just like a lot of users and identities already. Yeah. I definitely look at this over the long-term time horizon and be acquiring knowledge and intent. Yep, absolutely. And I would just add to that excellent manifesting that the interesting thing for me in poking around Portable and some of these other examples that sort of sit in the middle of the continuum is the idea of, at least in the short term, disentangling the concept or almost philosophy of decentralization from some of the underlying technology, right? And so if you have concerns about Ethereum or you have concerns about some of these underlying blockchain-based technologies, I think that's valid. And I think to your point, like we need to continue to experiment with those. We need to continue to make sure that they work at scale and support these different use cases. That doesn't necessarily mean that the only alternative is Apple, right? Or some other sort of very centralized approach or, you know, the federal government building their own digital identity system, which at least in the US is never gonna happen. Yeah. Like it, we don't need to necessarily have something that's totally centralized or something that's completely permissionless, we can have something that's in the middle. And, and the idea of having decentralized architecture provided by a collection or a consortium or a market of centralized companies that there's some level of trust embedded in, I think that's a really nice compromise. And I think that can get us where we need to get to a little quicker, at least in the short term, while we continue to build towards these larger visions that we're continuing to experiment here. All right, that's all of the manifesting I've got. I've uh, spent all of my energy. I want to receive some manifesting, hit me. Okay, I'm going to give you one. I'm going to cheat a little bit because this is not a fintech company, but it's fintech adjacent. And what I would like to manifest is I would really love a banking as a service bank that has more assets than $10 billion. <laughs> I want this, Simon. I know that there are larger banks that have done partnerships with fintech companies. Stephanie Cohen from Goldman Sachs was on stage yesterday. They have a whole transaction banking business. They do a lot of this. It's not the sole focus of Goldman Sachs, obviously. You know, there are a number of other larger banks that do these types of partnerships, but it's always sort of one-offs or part of the business. One of the things I like about banking as a service banks that are 
smaller that are sort of the primary ones doing this activity today and supporting the fintech ecosystem is they're almost entirely focused on it. It's like the core focus of their business. And the, the question I have, the thing I'm sort of wanting to see an example of is what does it look like with a bank with a bigger balance sheet, with more sophisticated technology, with more sophisticated compliance functions, with a greater level of sort of regulatory scrutiny, but also hopefully regulatory comfort and trust. What does it look like if they go all in on banking as a service? How much more could they enable fintech companies to do, right? Because you see some of the limitations of our current banking as a service infrastructure manifesting in things like, well, we outgrew our bank partner or our bank partner had some other risks that they were taking that made it difficult for them to work with us. Or, you know, our bank partner was just very difficult to integrate with because even though the business is really interested in banking as a service, the ledger that they use is provided by FIS and it's really difficult to integrate with and it makes it just a bear to work with them. I would love to see some of those constraints removed and just see what we can do, right? So like Bass Unleashed is kind of what I'm asking. That's that's your next blog title, Bass Unleashed. Unleashed. Yeah, so like as a preview to probably what I will rant about in my newsletter, Bass Unleashed. Yeah, I like that. I I was toying with writing about this week, Bass is dead. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, so that we could do a collab someday. But I mean, I agree. I find it really interesting. A couple of ideas came to my head as you were talking. One, uh, there are a bunch of mid-sized banks and even large banks that have co-brand card programs. Yes. Thinking about First National Bank of Omaha that yep. would include a John Deere and a Ford as their clients. Yep. Yep. Barclays, right? The U.S. business is almost, you know, outside of the Lehman acquisition, pretty much all their cards business, again, yeah. big co-brand card business, yeah. City, Chase, yeah. big co-brand card businesses, Bank of America. So there's people who get doing cards with another logo on it, yeah. but their systems and processes are set up to have like a two-year RFP with an enterprise, totally. and then they go, here's our app, you can put your logo on it in two years' time. Yep, uh, It's an excruciating process versus, you know, if I go to any of the BAS providers, I can be up and running in a sandbox in seconds and I didn't have to speak to anybody at sales. And you're customizing and you're tweaking it to be exactly what you want. Like you're building a product on top of those banks. Yeah. Whereas with traditional, I think co-brand cards are a really great example of this. That was, you are branding an existing product. You're not building yeah. a product. And you get to pick the specific APY and how many points somebody gets. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and the, the thing you were selling was your brand plus points. You were selling that. Uh, you weren't selling the fact that if you do this, you will build your credit score and be able to own your own home and all of these other things and expenses will automatically reconcile and good shit. So there's an opportunity definitely for those bigger organizations. They might want to partner with and or acquire one of the BAS providers because the dirty little secret of many BAS providers, not all, yeah. uh, there are clearly exceptions to this, is it's a lack of revenue and some of them are closing down yeah. because it was a crowded market. Yeah. So some of these folks had great technology. Why isn't that something that you could just layer on top of, it would take a while, but layer that on top of your internal systems and figure out you go to market and take some of the salespeople from one of those organizations. There you go, Banks. Free idea. That's right. That's and right. I won't even charge royalties because I'm not allowed to. Long story. <laughs> the other thing is, I know Unit does this. I think Sinterra does it. Yeah. There's a bu- Treasury Prime does it. There's a bunch of companies that work with multiple underlying sponsor banks to yeah. get you the best of best of all worlds. 
but yeah, like there's a gap for that organization that turns that model on its head. It's a bank as a service, not a middleware provider providing you a bank as a service. That's right. That's right. Well, and that's a good point because a lot of the way we're sort of artificially solving this right now is banking as a service platform in the middle that aggregates a bunch of banks together and gives you the sort of collective benefits of a larger balance sheet and like different levels of like risk tolerances. But I think there are problems with that aggregation too, right? Because yeah. you know, you're still working across multiple banks. Risk making, appetites all over the place. Yeah, there's just like, there's a bunch of things. Plus the other part of it is, and I understand why the Bass platforms want to do this, but like they're a cost center too, right? And so like if you're building on top of this, you would ideally not want to pay the Bass provider and the sponsor bank underneath. And so if you're a sufficiently sophisticated fintech company that wants to make money offering financial services, having a big bank partner that can give you good pricing, can give you a really powerful balance sheet with a lot of different capabilities for building different products and can do it in a way that doesn't require you to have a bunch of other companies in the middle. I think that's an intriguing value proposition. You said something interesting though, which was risk appetite compliance, like if you can solve compliance, yes, right? Yes. And that's a subject near and dear to my own heart, you know, declaration. Yeah. Health warning, I work at a company called Sardine that solves this for people. But one of the things we're talking to sponsor banks a lot about is how do we codify your compliance and ensure that your fintech companies are doing it? So if they use the Sardine APIs, we can give you a portfolio, like a dashboard view of does their program fit inside your risk appetite? Yeah. What do their rates look like? What does, it's almost like if you had, like you're a sponsor bank and you've got 200 fintechs, 500 fintechs, you got 200 children and you got to figure out, are they all behaving? <laughs> like imagine running that classroom. That sucks. Yeah, not doing Imagine that. if I had a dashboard that in real time could show me how they were all behaving and what their fraud rates were and could help me switch them on and off yeah. if I just, and I'm giving them an API that helps them get to market faster. That's the best of all of these worlds. Like, and I think the banks have these pieces of the puzzle out there. You know, the sardines and its competitors exist. The buzz providers and its competitors exist. Maybe it's M&A, maybe it's partnership, maybe it's something else. But like, don't hate, you know, collaborate. Let's do this. Absolutely. Well, that is a great place to leave it. That is sort of the theme, generally speaking, I've noticed for FinTech Meetup. It's been Tremendously fun to spend some time here at this event. Simon, it was a joy to get to do this in person. We don't get to podcast in person very often. Let's do this again. Yes, absolutely. So we'll do this again. We are going to be posting this in a couple of weeks. We hope you really enjoy it and we'll be back again soon. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.